welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our episodes by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and we are on Facebook and Instagram. Come and engage with us on social media. So today on the podcast, we have Dr. Jason Hannon up in Canada, who will be talking about his anthology called Meat Splaining, and we'll get into all that in just a bit. But, well, I had an interesting week. I would love to share my adventures with you. Cogent and I can't seem to go too long without having animals in our vicinity in distress out in the world, and I rescued some bunnies this week. It all started, actually, when my treadmill broke. I, I love my treadmill. I'm on the treadmill about an hour every morning, and it recently conked out on me, and I asked Cogent if he'd come out for a walk with me in the park. It was, it was really early, about 7 a.m., and in a patch of grass, Kojin looked over. He said, are those rabbits? And, you know, we've seen the little wild rabbits out there before, but those rabbits are kind of small and gray with perky ears. But these two were much larger. They had floppy ears and were reddish brown, and we were like, uh... Don't think those are wild rabbits. Uh, these were some domestic rabbits that had been dumped there. They were all wet and shivering in the cold morning, and we slowly went up to them, and one bounced away into the bushes, but the other stayed, and we were able to pet him, and we were looking at each other like, well, <laughs> what do we do now? So we immediately headed home and called the Sacramento Animal Services and told them where to find them. But, but we just we couldn't just sit and hope that they found them. We it was we just couldn't go on with our day not knowing what happened to them. So we grabbed a box and towels and carrots and got into the car and headed back to the park. And sure enough, he was just sitting right there where we left him. We got him eating a carrot, and he was very happy for that carrot, just munching it down. And I've, I've since learned that carrots are not very good for bunnies, uh, too much sugar. And we didn't know that. Uh, something I learned a lot about bunnies in a very short period of time. Uh, but um, it's okay for a, a treat. But it was certainly a good way to lure the other one out of the bushes when he smelled that carrot and uh, he came bouncing out. And we were just inching the box closer and moving really slowly, trying to get them to trust us. And I heard movement in the bushes and I saw another one. There was there were three. Uh, this one was gray with a white stripe on her forehead. She was beautiful and she wasn't feeling as safe to come out. She was much more cautious than her friends. But finally, she couldn't resist all the carrot chomping. <laughs> and so she came out and we just sat with the three of them for a long time. I, I wanted to make sure there weren't any more. I was really listening in the bushes. But little by little, we got them into good positions and picked them up, put them in the boxes without 
you know, really any resistance. They were super sweet. I think they realized that they were in trouble and kind of relaxed to the situation. But, you know, we've seen coyotes out there. I I don't think they would have lasted long out there. They were cold and wet. So we brought them home, put a towel down in the bathtub, uh, cranked the heat in the house and gave them like four bunches of parsley, which they just devoured. It was so cute to watch those little noses and mouths chewing up those greens. Just really, really adorable. So that all went pretty smoothly. But then the next seven hours was devoted to what to do with them. And my whole day got derailed. And I found that it was it was really hard to find a place for bunnies. The uh, city and county shelter wouldn't take them because they were rabbits. They're considered an exotic animal, you know, i.e. not a dog or a cat. And there are numerous rabbit rescues all over the Bay Area. In fact, I, I mean, I already knew of a couple, but when I Googled it, there were many more, but, but they're all full and not taking animals from individuals. In fact, most of them don't take animals from individuals. They just take rabbits from shelters that were about to be euthanized. So they're rescuing the rabbits that, that would be euthanized in the shelters, but they don't take them from individuals. Uh, we were starting to get worried. I mean, our place is too small. We just didn't really have the space for them. And we were really starting to get concerned. So we live in the city of Elk Grove. It's south of Sacramento. And I had called them for, you know, in one of the first calls I made. But they said that they weren't sure and they'd call me back. And I just, I thought they were just putting me off. But after a few hours, I decided to call again, and they said they would take them. They were really just making sure that they had the setup for them, you know, and they felt that they did. So uh, an Elk Grove is a really good shelter, and they promised no euthanasia unless there was some extreme medical issue. So we were, oh man, we were relieved, so grateful. Uh, but it made me realize probably why those bunnies were dumped there in the first place, you know? I mean, it took us seven hours and dozens of phone calls and emails and social media posts. And and I actually have mostly all vegan and animal people friends, right? I mean, a lot of people, they won't take that kind of time or don't have that kind of time. <sighs> so it's, you know, it's really a problem. And I, I have, like I said, I have numerous bunny friends, people that actually rescue bunnies. But of course, you know, they couldn't take them because they have five bunnies more than they thought they would. So everyone is rescuing beyond capacity. It's, it's really a problem. But I am, I'm really glad that we were out there in the park that morning. I've, I've really come to believe that things happen for a reason. I've had too many coincidental things happen in my life and even even seemingly crappy things, you know, when things aren't going our way, you know, there could be a larger picture. It could be for a reason and I'm really glad that my treadmill broke, you know? I mean, I was really bummed about it initially, of course, but you know, we would have never been out there that morning if it hadn't have broken. So that's what saved those bunnies. And something else, another moment in that day, one of my my bunny friends who helped me a great deal that day, you know, I said something to her like, 
animals in distress seem to always be in Kojin and I's vicinity. And she said, they're in everyone's vicinity. Just some of us are paying attention and care to do something about it. And that, it kind of broke my heart because it's so true. There are some of us that are tuned into animals in need and are willing to do something about it. And I realized that that includes all vegans. I mean, even if there isn't an animal right in front of you, cold and wet in the park to rescue, you know, there are farmed animals in distress right now in need of our help. And choosing to live vegan makes us aware of them, shows that we're paying attention to their plight, that we care, that, you know, we want to rescue them from their misery. Vegans are animal rescuers, indirectly, but still just as importantly. So this is not the first time that Kojin and I have rescued an animal or even a rabbit. We rescued a wild rabbit long ago from the freeway, actually. Uh, so uh, if you wanted to hear more rescue stories from Kojin and I, uh, I had him on the show. Episode 48 is called Vegan Love and Rescue, and uh, we talk about are many animal rescues over the years, some much more harrowing rescues than this one. Uh, so uh, yeah, you should check that out. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. All right, so the bun buns are safe and warm and fed. Whew. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy today's interview. Let's get into it. let's bring in Jason Hannon. Jason is an associate professor in the Department of Rhetoric, Writing, and Communications at the University of Winnipeg. He's the editor of Meatsplaining, the Animal Agriculture Industry and the Rhetoric of Denial. That was published in 2020. His current book project is called New White Saviors, the Colonial Mythology of Meat, which examines the meat industry as a form of cultural and ecological imperialism. Dr. Hannah is also the chair of the Winnipeg Veg Fest, the largest vegan and animal rights festival in central Canada. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. And we like to start just kind of getting to know you by hearing your vegan origin story. So why did you go vegan? When did you go vegan? Tell us, tell us about that journey. Sure. So I went vegan about uh, 12 years ago. Um, so this was when I was doing my postdoc um, in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I initially went vegan for health reasons. Um, my parents are both biologists. My dad's a cancer biologist. So I had always been very hyper aware of, of cancer. And then I had come across those studies linking, you know, the consumption of animal protein to, to cancer and other uh, adverse health outcomes. And so that just kind of prompted me to, to cut it out entirely. Um, and I didn't really know very much about the way that animals were treated on on the farms and so that came next and then the environmental consequences came next and so uh it just it was a period of a few weeks where i just made the transition to becoming completely vegan oh just a few weeks that's amazing yeah. good all right so you have edited a volume called meat splaining 
the animal agriculture industry and the rhetoric of denial. So tell us about this book. What inspired you to uh, do this project? Uh, what is it about? And and by the way, I really, I love the name. It cleverly comes from mansplaining, of course, where, as you say in your book, that it's kind of the overconfident men talking over women as a silencing mechanism. And meatsplaining is a similar silencing tool used by the industry. So, so tell us about this. Sure. So I got the idea for the book through my experience uh, participating as a speaker, as a panelist, um, and as an audience member at different uh, events um, about animals, where there would typically be somebody in the audience who would challenge um, the panelists or the speaker by asking a really annoying question like, you know, have you ever worked on a farm? And it's meant to be a trap, right? It's meant yeah. to imply that if you have never worked on a farm, therefore you don't really know what you're talking about and therefore you don't have the authority to be speaking about animals on farms, right? Yeah, yeah. And I noticed this happen over and over and over again. Coming from, you know, representatives of an industry that was obviously very upset and very, you know, worked up by activists who were raising awareness about all the terrible things that happen on these farms. And I think this was a way of um, trying to trying to silence us. And so I noticed this pattern over and over again. And it was, I think, expressive of a certain kind of extreme um, condescension. And so I realized that this happens on an interpersonal level, but then this also happens on a on a larger scale, that this is part of a, an industry PR tactic. So I decided to look at this through this, this lens or this concept that I had coined um, a few years back called meatsplaining. And I realized that this was a very useful way of making sense of so much of uh, meat industry propaganda, at least more recent meat industry propaganda in response to different forms of activism, different forms of awareness building. So that's where the idea for the book came from. Yeah, I, I find this also very interesting because it makes me think about how everyone, society, media, everyone considers farmers to be the animal experts, right? That mm -hmm. farmers are the experts on animals, but but farmers, you know, they're not experts on animal welfare or what animals need. They're experts on commodifying animals' bodies, right? And maximizing profits on animals' bodies. So that's where their expertise lies with animals. And recently there was uh, the Supreme Court arguments over Prop 12, and there was a news report on just a mainstream news outlet, and they interviewed for the for the piece two farmers one with like thousands of pigs and one with hundreds of pigs so there was the large scale and small scale farming but but no one else i mean that's the only experts quote unquote experts that they interviewed for the piece no animal advocates no one on the side of the pigs right and i i just i found that really interesting that we go to farmers for our information and our authority on animal issues when their interests are very different from animals' interests, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the way that the way that authority is designated in these uh, public debates, especially 
when they enter, you know, the institutional realm uh, is extremely political, right? Um, I mean, like, why would they select a farmer? A farmer at best is an expert in production, as you said, they're not an expert in environmental science, they're not an ex expert in um, animal psychology, they're not an expert in animal sentience, they have no training in ethics, so why, why are they considered to be an, a kind of all-purpose expert? It's a really arbitrary and highly, highly political designation. Yeah, yeah, and it makes me think too that there are other uh, problematic or, or polluting industries like the oil industry. And if there was some debate around the environmental impacts, we wouldn't go to the oil industry and ask them for, you know, for their expertise on it, right? We would go to the environmentalists. So why is it that farmers have this kind of exemption, like they are uh, the authority? It's really very fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would be like um, going to uh, uh, you know a drug dealer for epidemiological opinions about you know, widespread drug use. It's, it's <laughs> a very, very political choice. And obviously this has a lot to do with the political economy of uh, animal agriculture and the fact that they have, you know, a very long history of being subsidized by government. So it's, it's sad and obviously political, but also utterly predictable. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And a, and a deep connection with government for sure. And, and also the law, and in the introduction of meat splaining, you talk about the cruelty in the industry and how it is protected by law. And I think this is something that's that's so critical to bring to light that if what what was what is done to farmed animals was being done to dogs and cats, it would be, you know, in many most places criminally prosecuted with possible felony charges in some cases. But as long as the procedure is standard or commonly practiced in the industry, then it's exempt from these cruelty laws, right? And you said in the introduction, quote, law and industry are intimate bedfellows. Can you talk more about this? Yeah, sure. So it's, it's another one of these very, very standard talking points from the industry. When you object to their extremely cruel practices, um, they will, as a, a kind of default, say uh, we're operating squarely within the law. Nothing we are doing is illegal. And this is this uh, really frustrating reduction of uh, the ethical to the legal. Well, as long as it's legal, then it must be ethical, right? Yeah, yeah. And the common retort that animal activists keep making against this kind of argument is that, that you know, there was you know, a time when slavery was considered legal. That doesn't mean that it was ethical. There was a time when spousal abuse was was legal. That doesn't mean that it was ever ethical, right? So just because something is legal doesn't mean that it's okay to do. But um, unfortunately, because we operate in a litigious society, a society where uh, the law is kind of king, they can fall back on that argument and say, well, as long as we abided by the law, as long as we were within the you know legal framework, it's okay, and therefore they can pass off what they're doing as perfectly ethical. And so that reduction, that conflation between ethics and law is what I was trying to poke at there. So you have questions in the volume that you seek to answer, or you, you were stating questions that you seek to answer. And one of those was, 
what narratives, myths, and fantasies does the meat industry employ to sustain its image in the public imagination? And this, I believe, aligns with my work on the humane hoax. I have an anthology coming out, an edited volume coming out as well in the spring, on the subject of the humane hoax. So I, I know how much work it goes into one of these volumes, one of these uh, anthologies. And, it, you know, the humane hoax, of course, is around the false narratives of humane labeling and marketing and advertising in meat, dairy, and eggs. And I know that some of the essays in your book touch on this. What did you uncover in your book around the humane hoax? Sure. So one example would be a chapter by uh, Sarah Kupsala called Ethical Meat from Family Farms. And so this chapter explores a certain tactic by animal farms in Finland, where uh, in response to all of the negative um, publicity surrounding family farms because of their uh, brutal treatment of animals, Certain farms have started these tours uh, of their farms where they will offer visitors this very antiseptic and very sanitized picture and experience where they will only see the nice parts of uh, the animal farm. Everything is clean. Everything is nice. Everything is happy. It corresponds to the propaganda, the nice kind of uh, old McDonald you know, image where they do not have to see uh, the, you know, ugly uh, other side of animal farming, right? And so this is one of these tactics where they will specifically invite influencers and bloggers and other opinion leaders onto the farm uh, in order to give them this kind of happy experience so they can then go and uh, then blog about it and write about it and then disseminate a happy, nice picture of the farms in order to challenge the, uh, the negative publicity surrounding um, animal brutality. Yeah. Yeah. You see that here as well in Sonoma County, they have this thing called farm trails and it's like tours that you go on to go to goat dairies and different farms. And it is so amazing how they clean them up and sanitize them so much. I have, I have pictures where you can compare. I, I went on the tours and all you see are very healthy, clean animals in very, you know, in, in, in straw and all of that. And, but you're only seeing a snapshot of their life, right? You're not really seeing what happens before and after and all the cruelties <laughs> that are done to them before and after that moment you're on the farm. But when I've gone onto these farms, just, just going to observe myself, you know, it's a completely different story. And the, the animals are in mud and muck and manure. And, you know, it's very, very different. So yeah, there's a really interesting humane washing going on. You know, usually when we talk about the humane hoax, we're talking about labeling and, and marketing. But now this, it's true, they're inviting people actually onto the farms, but you only get a real sanitized version of it. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I, I want to talk about social media because I think that social media has been really a double-edged sword, right? And your book talks about how social media can democratize the response to this extremely one-sided advertising and marketing and meat-splaining so that we can, you know, take something and, and analyze it and make comments on it. 
but I think it, that it, there's another side to it that that it can also bolster the industry where they create doubt about facts and science and anything that goes against their narrative, right? There can be so much good in social media helping us to get the message out, but they have a lot of power too. The industry has a lot of power too on social media and can use it as a platform for meat-splaining. So, you know, do you want to talk about the role of social media in all this? Yeah, sure. So you're right to say that it's a, it's a double-edged sword. So on the one hand, it's been extremely empowering for activists of various kinds, including uh, animal activists in challenging status quo, dominant, established official narratives. Um, and in that respect, as far as you know, activist messaging goes, it's been a, an incredible success story, right? Yeah. Um, the, the video footage circulated by different activist groups and um, investigative reporters on the brutality of animal farms, that's been incredibly effective in raising consciousness. People watch these videos. It doesn't have to be an hour-long documentary. It can be like a 10-second clip, and it's enough to change their entire perception of the food industry and inspire many of these people to go to go vegan, right? So in that respect, I think we have, we have you know, a lot to say for the, the, you know, the revolutionary power of these platforms, right? At the same time, the, the opposite is true as well. Um, it can be used for uh, suppression, for denial, for toxicity. And absolutely, the animal agriculture industry has a vigorous presence on these platforms uh, where they push for the mythology of animal farms. There's on these reels, for example, on Facebook and, and other platforms, there's a lot of these, um, you know, steak videos that, that go viral. People just love watching, you know, steak grilling, you know, on the grill. They, they love watching these kinds of videos. There is this kind of concerted effort to promote and to circulate uh, images and messages about meat um, that have an implicit, oftentimes an implicit, tacitly negative message towards vegans and vegetarians, right? And part of this, part of this is a, uh, a message of trolling. I'm writing a book right now uh, called Trolling Ourselves to Death, which is a play on Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Mm. And anti-vegan trolling is uh, an entire, you know, kind of discourse unto itself. Yeah. Where, you know, they will post these memes intended to show how naive or silly or ignorant or violent vegans and animal rights activists are. And it can get really, really heated, right? If some, let's say, for example, an animal farm will post a message in response to Beyond Meat. These kinds of posts can generate thousands and thousands of comments where animal farmers will kind of congregate and then there will be this ritual demonization of vegans and animal rights activists and companies that are producing vegan products, it becomes this ritual of, of, you know, denunciation, right? So this is the other side of social media, where unfortunately, there are these bubbles, and the animal farmers have their bubble, um, they cluster together. And within those bubbles, they reinforce each other in their fantasies, in which they insulate themselves from critique and anytime they encounter any sort of message or content they don't like, they all just pounce on it en masse. So 
Unfortunately, that's the other side of social media. It's empowering in one respect, and then it is a source of disinformation on the other. Yeah, it's unfortunate that you so often get the comments of "Mm, bacon or I'm going to go eat a steak because you posted this or (laughs) whatever, you know, it happens all the time to me. And, uh, and you have to delete these posts and it's frustrating. And, 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 and you're right. It's kind of like become a, a, almost a pastime for some people to go and troll, uh, you know, vegan sites. It's awful. Yeah, it's quite awful. Uh, I think, vegans are getting better at responding to these people. And, you know, there are vegans who will troll them back. So for example, the, uh, the social media account, uh, Elwood's dog meat, Elwood's dog meat farm, or whatever it's called, they're, they're pretty much a very elaborate and quite brilliant trolling outfit. Yeah. Where they just they just replace one animal with another, but then reproduce the same content. In some cases, they will take a popular campaign and just, again, replace the animal that will replace cows with with dogs and see how people respond to it. And so from our point of view, obviously, it's really funny and it's really hilarious. And it's a brilliant, brilliant form of, you know, parody and satire. But it gets under the skin of the animal farmers because it shows just how ridiculous their talking points are about how much they they really truly love animals before they uh, end up uh, slaughtering them, right? Well, if you, all you have to do is just replace those farm animals with dogs, and then you see just how ridiculous that kind of logic is, right? So I think vegans are getting wiser to anti-vegan trolling and trolling back with their own really quite brilliant form of trolling. So, so it's, it's an interesting time to be alive. Yeah. Yeah. And we've had Molly Elwood on the podcast recently, actually. It was one of my favorite episodes, actually. It's in my Hope's Favorites if uh, you go to the website. But yeah, I, I don't know if I would call it trolling, though, so much. I think it, you're right that it's it's more political satire. Uh, it's a calling out in a way. Uh, but I don't know that it's that it that it really is trolling because what she's doing is I guess it is response, but not necessarily direct response to someone's um, post. You know, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, it's it is a brilliant campaign. You're absolutely right. But yeah, I don't know that I would want to encourage us as a vegan community to be trolling in that you know, actually going to sites and, and vegansplaining, I guess, you know, I don't know, maybe that would be a, a, a good tactic in some cases, but I could see that not being very helpful in some cases as well. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not in favor of, um, you know, going to the comments section of an animal farm's social media page and, and, and attacking them there. But part of yeah. the point of my book is that the meaning of trolling is more than just kind of, you know, um, making snarky comments. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a far, far bigger phenomenon than that. Yeah. And some trolling can be toxic, but it's not all toxic. Okay. I guess I would just urge caution. I, I think we'd need to be strategic, right? Sure. Yeah. So I'd love to to switch to your current project. You have another project, another volume in the works called New White Saviors, the Colonial Mythology of Meat. 
which explores the meat industry's violent history of colonialism and ecological imperialism. So tell us about this project. Yeah, sure. So this project arose from my critique of the uh, humane uh, beef uh, idea, the idea that grass-fed beef is somehow sustainable and, and good for the planet. Um, I cr- had a critique of this towards the end of uh, meat splaining, And as I was thinking about this subsequently, um, I realized that there is a racial and colonial dimension to animal agriculture that almost always gets left out of well, certainly gets left out of um, animal ag's own rhetoric. I mean, they, they will have zero uh, mention of it, but it also routinely gets left out of activist discussions as well, right? Yeah. yeah. So one of the kind of basic facts about animal agriculture in North America um, that gets completely occluded in the talk of how natural uh, animal farming is and how it's a necessary part of the the environment uh, it's a natural part of the you know it's a necessary part of the ecosystem is that cows and pigs are not even native to the americas yeah these animals were forcibly brought here by europeans and subjected to an alien form of uh, animal agriculture which not only had very serious impact on the the environment, uh, it was also used um, as a mechanism, as a driver for the expulsion of indigenous peoples uh, off of their lands. Uh, It was used as a a driver of ethnic cleansing. So there's this really ugly history here that does not get talked about enough. And part of what fascinated me um, is the fact that we don't talk about it at all. How is it that we now inhabit this fantasy where so many people accept the idea that this is the way it's always been and people have always just farmed, you know, cows and pigs? This didn't just happen overnight. There had to have been a history to this entire process, right, where the idea of the animal farmer just became part of the settler colonial imaginary. And so what I want to do is to look at the construction of this idea in poetry and in literature to, to, to understand how it was that this basic, basic part of the history of the Americas, namely ethnic cleansing, could get completely occluded and replaced with the fantasy of the happy uh, farmer who is caring for the land and caring for the animals and so forth. And the most, I think, uh, insidious part of this today is when you see animal farmers who in opposition to veganism, will claim a solidarity with indigenous people and say, you vegans, you're actually a form of cultural imperialists. You're telling people not to eat meat. Well, we, just like indigenous people, we eat meat, right? Mm. So we're on their side. Mm. Uh, And this is, I think, so dishonest and so deceptive. And it completely, again, erases the role that this industry has played uh, in in ethnic cleansing, which is happening right now in the Ameri- in, uh, in in Brazil, right? So so I wanted to write the history of that. So that's what that book is going to be about. Wow, wow, uh, that's going to be incredibly powerful, and I'm I'm so so glad that our movement is finally starting to explore this. 
there's all this, especially here in America and in the U.S. And I, you know, and I, I think that it's similar in Canada. There's this white identity around the cowboy, like this this folkloric dominant cowboy uh, controlling and colonizing the land and the animals. There's really this kind of speciesist prevailing force right around this domination of nature and animals and uh, and and certainly racism is is caught up in that, this centuries of oppression. And and now, interestingly, you have conservatives equating meat eating with conservative values, right? And they and and you hear this now, like at their at conservative conventions and stuff. You hear these repeating lines, like they want to take away your hamburgers. Uh, you know, they being the liberals or whatever want to take away your hamburgers. So there's this um, it, meat eating becomes caught up in like white identity politics, uh, dominance, control, superiority. It's it's just fascinating. Beef has become kind of the symbol of of our national identity in the US and and kind of a signifier of like American exceptionalism, right? Uh, and 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 sexism, of course, feeds into this as well, with beef and the cowboy being hypermasculine. So it's uh, it wow, it goes deep, absolutely. Um, this kind of connection of colonial identity and racism and sexism and speciesism, fascinating stuff. Well, thank you. Yeah, and you're right. Beef has become encoded into the political identities, not just of. Uh, the United States, but Canada as well. Beef eating is part of national identity in Canada. It's the same thing in uh, Great Britain. It's the same thing in Australia. There has been, you're right, a very conscious, deliberate marketing attempt to to put beef into the uh, into the national consciousness as part of what it means, as part of the definition of what it means to be an American. And about cowboys. Just since you mentioned it, I mean, there there is um, a bumper sticker that you can find in the United States that says beef because the West wasn't won on salad. Yes. <laughs> and they're, they're in that case, they're not even hiding it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's um, a kind of a cartoonish cowboys and Indians version of history. But they're not even hiding the fact that the West was won through the expansion of ranchers, um, which, again, ranching, ranching is a genocidal practice in North America the way, the way it was, though, sorry, the way it is right now uh, in Brazil, right? It's being used as a mechanism to drive the uh, indigenous inhabitants of the Amazon out of their ancestral homes. And people look at what's happening in Brazil and they're utterly horrified and they don't re- realize that this this is this already happened in North America. This already happened in Canada and the United States. We just it just happened so long ago that we don't have any comprehension of it, right? Yeah. So part of what I want to do is to take what's happening in Brazil as you know a kind of a, a reminder of what happened in North America that we completely forgot about. Huh. Wow. Yeah. And 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 even milk actually is kind of in the fray of all this, milks become this kind of symbol of white superiority. And I don't know if you've seen this, but these there's these viral stunts of these 
young white men that are like they're they're like shirtless and they're like guzzling milk by the gallon kind of pouring it all over themselves and it's this it's this claiming of some genetic superiority because communities of color communities of the global majority are often uh, lactose intolerant or have more sensitivities around digesting milk so they're claiming some genetic superiority because they can drink milk you know drink another animal's milk that we really shouldn't be drinking at all biologically. But, uh, but yeah, it's just fascinating what's happening with milk. I, I don't, do you, do you know anything about that? Or are you going to include that? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's uh, there, there are these, you know, neo-fascists and, and neo-Nazis who have turned milk, you know, the same way that um, Republicans have turned beef into an, yet another prop in the culture wars, right? Yeah. Um, so, so uh, yeah, it's one of these ways of defining boundaries and defining divisions, you know, between people uh, by using um, food that, you know, some people, whether they want to consume it or not, they can't consume it because they, 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 they lack the enzyme required to digest it. So, this is one of these really unfortunate aspects of, of the modern culture wars. I, I have a, I teach a class on the culture wars, and I have a book on this also. But but yeah, this is just another example of how, for the sake of you know defining identity and and cordoning off you know one segment of humanity from another, animals yet again suffer. Yeah, Ooh, really really heavy stuff. Yeah, crazy. And you mentioned your class, and I actually wanted to ask you about uh, that course that you teach at University of Winnipeg. I think it's called uh, Rhetoric of Animality. What What is this course? Tell us about this. And uh, and if, if you've seen any shift in your students with you know knowledge around animal rights issues, I, I wonder about the young people and their breadth of knowledge. So yeah, tell us about this course you teach. Sure. So this course began as an experimental course in the fall of 2015. We had brought, our university had brought uh, Dr. Jane Goodall to campus. And so in honor of her visit, I was asked to teach a special seminar uh, revolving around animals. And so I had proposed a course called, um, it was called Humanity, Animality and Secularity. And so it was, again, purely experimental, and I was assigning uh, books and essays that I had never assigned before. It was just intended to be a one-off. And I had so much fun with it, and my students had so much fun with it that I decided that I wanted to turn this into a permanent course. So um, I put in an application, created a poster around it, a syllabus, list of readings and all of it. It got approved. And so I've been teaching it uh, ever since. Um, and so basically the, the, the idea behind the course is to look at the, uh, the history of the way that we have understood our relationship to animals, looking at the ancient world, both religion and philosophy, the way that human uh, identity was defined uh, in contrast to the animals in these hierarchical terms. So whether you are religious or whether you were an ancient secular philosopher, reality was understood in terms, of, in terms of the great chain of being, in terms of hierarchy, where animals are, below, are beneath uh, humans. And then to look at the way that even despite the advent of the modern world, despite revolutions in science and revolutions in philosophy and government, 
we still maintain this outdated hierarchical thinking where we still believe ourselves to be superior to the animals, right? And the question becomes, well, what are these arguments and frameworks by which we, we uphold this, this hierarchy? What kind of, how, how do we rationalize this? A huge part of the course is devoted to interrogating the rationalizations for this supposed human superiority over the animals. So we go through a whole bunch of different um, books and authors and topics and debates. And uh, it's it's one of the uh, most enjoyable classes that I teach. And I usually get a very diverse group of students. So they're not just rhetoric majors. They're not just humanities majors. I mean, I get students from rhetoric. I get students from English. I get students from philosophy a lot from uh, the social sciences, from political science and sociology. I get a lot of students from the from the sciences, so a lot of biology majors who are interested in going on to become vets, um, mm. some of whom are interested in the whole problem of animal testing. Uh, they want to become uh, scientists, and so they're interested in alternatives to animal testing. I get a very, very diverse group of students, and so we have incredible discussions in that class. And the class is unapologetically pro-animal rights and pro-animal liberation. Mm -hmm. And so I don't treat it as something that needs to be controversial or something like that, right? Like if you teach a women's and gender studies class, it's going to be unapologetically pro-gender equality, right? Right, right. Um, it would be unapologetically pro-women's rights. If you yeah. teach a human rights course, um, it'll be unapologetically pro-human rights. And I don't yeah. see why this course should be any different. Yeah, good points. Absolutely. Yeah. And are you seeing, I, I, I just wonder if, because if, the young people have so much more information at their fingertips. Are you, do you think that younger people are more aware of animal issues, that they have more knowledge around animal issues, or are people still just kind of clueless? Uh, not my students, no. They're quite informed. Uh, they're very informed. And that's the entire reason why they take this class. Yeah. Um, they are aware of the, the horrors of animal farming. They're aware of the link between animal farming and uh, climate change. Um, and so they, they sign up for the course not to be sold on the idea of animal rights, but because they just want to advance their understanding mm. of the discourse and of the movement and they want to read um, some challenging texts. They just want to expand their minds, right? Yeah. That's, I, that's the majority of the students in the class. Okay. I, I guess what I really want to know is, are you seeing more vegans? I'm seeing <laughs> more vegans. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely seeing more vegans. Um, I'm also seeing students who go vegan as a result of the class, right? So they may have signed up on a whim. They may have signed up because they needed something to fulfill their humanities requirement or because they just, you know, they just uh, they needed something to fit their their schedule or something like that. They take the course and then they find that it challenges everything they ever thought about food and about our, you know, about our society. And a lot of these people will end up going vegan as a result of it. Wow, that's very powerful. Great work, Jason. Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Jason, it's been a really, really wonderful and enlightening conversation. Um, you're doing some powerful work. I appreciate what you're doing so much. And I want to ask you our last question. What gives you hope for the future? Fellow activists. Uh, I mean, I think that we live in a very, very heavily 
lonely and alienated society. And a lot of activists just kind of, I think, are are caught in these patterns of isolation, and they want to know how they can make a difference. And I think that when they are a part of a community, when they, you know, are immersed in these, these networks of like-minded individuals who have the same intentions, the same passions, the same, you know, compassion as, uh, as they do, then it not only helps to alleviate that feeling of isolation and loneliness, but it's greatly, incredibly empowering. And so they can feel, they can, they can actually get a lot more done when they work together rather than working in isolation. So I think that, um, you know, solidarity with fellow activists and building, you know, activist networks and communities is, it's not just good for the animals, but uh, it's inspiring for the rest of us as well. Wonderful. Oh, great, great. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for joining me today. I very much appreciate your powerful work. Uh, I look forward to your next volume. And uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. I love it when you get a fun new term in life, right? Since the interview, I have now had a few occasions uh, where I have seen something or heard something, and I can now identify it as meatsplaining. So I'll have a link to the book in the show notes. You should pick one up, read it, pass it on, maybe get one for a friend. The holidays are coming, might make a good gift. And please share this episode with your friends and on social media. More people need to hear about this book. And your help is one of the best ways for us to grow our audience and reach more people with our compassionate message. So please pass this episode on in your networks. I hope you're enjoying the crisp fall weather. And please live vegan.